to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now, once or twice when we've been studying Isaiah, I have said that here and there, as in all the prophets, you find the prophet working on two perspectives. Sometimes he is addressing himself and thinking specifically about the present day, about current situations, and he is directly speaking about the situation around him in which Isaiah is living in the 8th century BC. Sometimes he lifts his eyes away to a far distant horizon, and he begins to see far beyond the present or the immediate future to the ultimate future in the providence of God, and to see how God is shaping not only present history, but future history in the long term. And it's this second kind of perspective that we discover Isaiah bringing before us in the first seven verses of chapter 9. He is speaking about the ultimate hope of God's people who in their present situation are walking in such dreadful darkness. That darkness, of course, is chiefly moral darkness. And we have seen how Judah, God's people to whom Isaiah principally speaks in the south, have sought to put their confidence somewhere else than in God. And again and again in Isaiah, that's the note that sounded once and again, that the people have gone astray because they have lodged their confidence somewhere else than in God, usually in human wisdom or human achievement or man's resources. And Isaiah is constantly pressing this upon them. Now he is pressing again that the only ultimate hope for Israel, for Judah, for mankind, is in what God is going to do. Now that, of course, is where Christmas and all that it means and involves comes right into the center of Isaiah's message at this stage. What he is saying to us is that the hope of all the ages lies in what God is going to do. And you will notice that more than once previously we have found Isaiah saying what God is going to do, he is going to do in the most revolutionary way because he is going to do it not by sending some mighty army or some great regal figure who will impress human thinking. He is going to send a child. And we have found in chapter 7 already there has been this prophecy of the virgin who will conceive and bear a child, and his name she will call Emmanuel, God with us. And here we discover ourselves in the same context of God's promise, the ultimate hope of God's people is what God is going to do. Now, there are basically two ways of living illustrated here. One is in chapter 8, verse 22, just as we come into chapter 9. Chapter 8, verse 22, the people will look toward the earth 
and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. The darkness is going to be progressive, in other words. As people look towards the earth, that is, as they look at the human situation and at human prospects, what they will see is a progressive darkness. And that certainly is the biblical view of history. It doesn't hold out for us some hope of a gradual progress of humankind. It doesn't hold out for us an evolving of man getting better and better and the world improving as a place to live in. What it holds out for us is the progressive darkness that there is in the world. But the other way to live is in verse 17 of chapter 8. And you'll notice how Isaiah takes these words upon his lips. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will put my trust in him. Now these are the two ways for people to live, for us to live in the modern world in which we are found this evening. The two ways to live are looking to earth or saying, I will wait on the Lord who is hiding his face from Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Now in chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah begins to unfold for us the blessing of waiting on God. And you will notice that one of the great contrasts here, as it has been in the end of chapter 8, is between darkness and light. And you will know that darkness and light are not just conditions in Scripture. They are not simply the differences that exist between night and day. Darkness and light are symbols in Scripture, always. Darkness is a symbol of sin and judgment and folly. And light is a symbol of God and of righteousness and truth. You think, for example, of the judgment on Egypt in the days immediately before the redemption of God's people. And one of the plagues on Egypt was darkness. You think of what gathered around our Lord on the cross, a deep and intense darkness. Now, it is this darkness that Isaiah is speaking of, a moral darkness. And here uh, the light symbolizes God's presence manifested. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, where Isaiah says that uh, Zebulun and Naphtali are the two areas which he humbled. And in the future... He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the, the Jordan because there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress because of what God is going to do. He is going to lead his people out of the darkness. And Zebulun and Naphtali 
are an illustration of this. It's a very interesting thing to see the way they're an illustration of it. Again, if we'd had a map, you would see that Zebulun and Naphtali are the two areas just to the west and slightly to the north of the Sea of Galilee. If you can have in your mind that Jerusalem is in the south, the River Jordan runs up from there, and the Sea of Galilee is at the northern end of it. And then just to the west of there are Zebulun and to the north, Naphtali. These are the areas that we would call Galilee. And that's why Isaiah says Zebulun and Naphtali have been humbled by God. And they were humbled because the Assyrians came in and invaded them, took away the best of their people. But in that very area which knew such darkness and gloom and despair, Isaiah prophesies that God is going to do something in the future that will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, you really need to see this in the New Testament. Uh, turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And to verses 13 and 15. Here is Jesus in, um, well, you really need to look at verse 12. Here is Jesus at Capernaum. Verse 12 of Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. Now we don't need to wonder, therefore, what is it that Isaiah the prophet is speaking about? He is speaking about Christ who came as a light to lighten the Gentiles. If you look at Isaiah chapter 42, where Christ as the servant of Jehovah is speaking, spoken about, he comes as a light to lighten the Gentiles. We'll be thinking about this more on Sunday morning from Romans 15. But it is one of the great themes of Scripture. Jesus has come as a light to lighten the Gentiles. And here in Capernaum, as he comes to minister to the people, he is bringing the light of the glory of God and of his salvation into this place about which Isaiah prophesied 800 years before. Now this is a very wonderful thing. This is how the darkness is therefore to be dispelled for them and for us by the coming of Jesus. Now Isaiah pronounces this prophecy from verse 2, you will notice, in a way that sounds as if it had already happened. What is often called the prophetic perfect the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And it's one of the ways of the prophets emphasizing the absolute certainty of what they are speaking about being fulfilled. Now we see in the beginning of the Gospels this very prophecy being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Notice the three transformations that the Messiah is going to bring. Who could doubt who the prophet is speaking about? So notice the three transformations the Messiah is to bring. Verse 2, he is going to bring light in place of darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Now Matthew sees in Jesus' ministry the fulfillment of that. People who were sitting in the shadow of death, Jesus has brought them life and light and hope. Secondly, instead of the depopulation and despair of the reign of godliness, there is multiplied joy in verse 3, like the joy of harvesters and victors. Listen to verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now this again, you see, is the transforming presence of the Messiah. Whereas they were finding the whole of their nation depopulated and people living in despair, now there is something of a living joy coming through the presence and power of the Messiah. And thirdly, in verse 4, instead of light of darkness, light, instead of despair, joy, instead of slavery and oppression, there is liberty and peace. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, verse 4, you remember who it was who was involved in Midian's defeat? By the way, good question to go round the class with, as it were, isn't it? Gideon is the man who was involved in Midian's defeat. And as in that day, says Isaiah, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, you know, the symbol of slavery, the rod of their oppressor. And then in verse 5, all the symbols of war are going to be destroyed and burned up. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire because in the reign of the Messiah, there is going to be not only the breaking of every bondage and the liberating of those who are captives, but an end of all the turmoil of war. There will be the reign of the Prince of Peace. So in place of darkness, light. In place of despair, joy. In place of slavery and oppression, there is liberty and peace. Now, we might have expected from verse 4, that it may have been some latter-day Gideon who was going to ride into the situation to accomplish this. But then we discover what's the really astonishing thing, if you hadn't known this passage before, in verse 6, that the vehicle, the means, the instrument that God is going to use is a child who will be born, a baby who will be brought into the world. Now, in another sense, 
Gideon should have prepared us for that, you know. Because do you remember the lesson that God taught Gideon when he was going to be God's instrument for achieving the salvation of God's people? Well, he taught him the lesson that it was not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And Gideon was sent away to get rid of his army, one lot after another, until he was down to a small band of men. And the lesson of all that was not simply choose the best and the strongest, but salvation is God's work. Now, this is exactly what we are being taught here. It's one of the things we can so easily miss, you know, in the Christmas story. One of the things that this message is teaching us and that the heart of the incarnation teaches us is that salvation is all of God and it is all of grace. No man can produce it. No sinner can deserve it. And this whole passage teaches us precisely this. Now this child who is to be born is described in ways that signify that he is both human and divine. Do you notice that also? For to us a child is born. Now that is a guarantee to us that the one who is going to come as God's Messiah is going to be born of a woman. That is, he is going to be human. But then do you notice when he is born, he is to be named, not just the son of the woman, or even in the chapter 7 account, Emmanuel, God, with us. He is to be named the mighty God. Do you notice that? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is how the Messiah is introduced to us. A helpless baby bearing all the reality of human flesh and yet the eternal God incarnate. That's Isaiah's vision and this is what is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now you notice the names that he has given because he spells this out for us more fully. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now that's an extraordinary picture if you think of it. A little child and on his shoulders the government, that is the government of the world. And yet this is the destiny of him who is to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Now notice how he is described. And the names, these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, they are full of truth that we greatly need to learn about the coming of the Messiah. 
In so many ways, you see, he precisely met the needs of poverty-stricken Israel in Isaiah's day. And he precisely meets the needs, not only of Isaiah's contemporaries, but of ours. Notice he is first of all called Wonderful Counselor. Now, it's a very significant thing. This, this comes again and again in Isaiah. Let me just show you one or two places where the phrase occurs um, dealing with the counselors amongst men. Isaiah 19, verse 11. This is the contemporary world, you see, in which Isaiah lived. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. Now, again and again throughout Isaiah, you get notes like that of a despising of human wisdom. And you know, it's a very interesting thing that in our generation, one of the great new things is counseling, isn't it? Everybody's looking for counseling of some kind. Marriage counseling, counseling courses in all sorts of different areas of life. There are people who spend their time going around doing nothing else, certainly in the United States, Sinclair will tell you, doing courses on counseling, counseling seminars, and so on. Why is that? Well, it's because people have a profound sense of the lack of wisdom, the lack of counsel that they have in their daily life. It happens increasingly in a society which has jettisoned God and Scripture, that they're deeply aware of a hunger, a need for wisdom and counsel. That, of course, is precisely why the horoscopes in the newspapers are so constantly consulted by people. Now, where is perfect counsel to be found? Not that we despise the counsel that is mediated through wise people to us, but where is perfect counsel and perfect wisdom to be discovered? The answer is, it is to be discovered in God and in Christ. And he has come in order that the whole perfection of the wisdom of God may be brought to us in Jesus Christ. He is the wonderful counselor. You notice it is not only wisdom that he brings, but the power of God. Isn't it a very striking thing that in Isaiah's society as well as in ours, that was one of the things they discovered that they lacked. They were searching everywhere for power. For example, Judah went off to Assyria. Where is their power? Where is their influence? Because we are weak. We are conscious of our weakness and need. And they ran off to Assyria. That was the current place where the center of power was to be found, you know.
Very interesting. People talk about the, the great power centers of the world in the 20th century. My dear friends, we so much need to grasp where the real power center of the world is in our generation. Very interesting thing, you know, that we discover ourselves to be the generation which is able to control more than any preceding generation throughout the whole of history. We can control a quite extraordinary technology, but you know the one thing we cannot control? I'll tell you. We cannot control human behavior. That's what we can't control. And so people are aware, increasingly I think, of this desperate situation which baffles statesmen and politicians. How do we deal with this problem of the uncontrollable demon of human nature and human behavior? And he who is to come is called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, that is the All-Powerful God, the Everlasting Father. There is the other thing, you know, if there is another thing that our modern world, as Isaiah undoubtedly is desperately looking for, it is love. Isn't that right? We are a world that is hungering for love, real, genuine love. And here, quite extraordinarily, in this baby who is to be born, there is one who is described as the everlasting Father, who has an unending care and tender concern for his children. Now, you may say, but that's God the Father. Ah, but you see, when the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory came down into the world and people said, we will be satisfied if you will show us the Father, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And he is the Prince of Peace. Isn't it a very interesting thing that if wisdom and power and love are things that people are aching for in the modern world, peace is the last of them. And here in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah of God, there is the one who is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That is he is going to march on in the purposes of God until that day when every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's the increase of his government, which will have no end. Now that's a glorious hope to set before uh, God's people and that is the messianic hope. That is the hope of the coming of the Redeemer. Now, just notice the remaining section of this passage with me uh, in our last uh, few minutes together. From chapter 9, verse 8, to chapter 10, verse 4, there is a return to the immediate situation especially with regard to Israel. And you will see that here there are 
four prophecies that Isaiah makes, four statements that he makes, four messages that he brings, each of them with exactly the same refrain. You will notice as we read it in um, chapter 9, verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. It is in every case, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. So these four messages all concern the anger of God. That is the wrath of God, the indignation of God against his people. First of all, he is setting before us this long-term vision, you see, of the coming of the Messiah. But now he says, in the meantime, these people to whom Isaiah is addressing his prophecy are under the, the wrath of a holy God. His hand upon them is a hand of discipline and judgment because he is a holy God, because he is not indifferent to sin. And we need to recognize the presence of God's anger uh, against certain things in Scripture very real. In fact, it's a very real test of our own character, you know, if you find out what it is that makes you angry. Have you ever thought about that? What is a real test of anybody's character? Well, you find out the thing that makes them angry. If the thing that makes them angry most of all is some insult to themselves or something of the kind, you know a great deal about that person's character. If you find that some assault upon their child is the thing that brings wrath rising up and indignation within them, you can tell a great deal about their love for their child. If, on the other hand, they say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, that doesn't worry me in the slightest, you know a great deal about their character. It's what makes people angry that often is a revelation of their character. Now, there are four things here that draw out God's anger in this passage, and we need to look at them at least uh, before we come to uh, close this evening. You notice what it is that uh, God is saying at the end of each of these, for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Now, the hand of God in Scripture is an instrument of various things, as you know. The hand of God is an instrument of provision. It's a hand that is held out to the needy. The eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. He satisfies their need, therefore. And uh, it is also an instrument of direction. He shows his will by the direction of his hand. It's also an instrument of protection. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Uh, you find people like Nehemiah saying, and he was protecting him from his enemies and giving him prosperity in his work. But the hand of God is also an instrument of discipline. And it is here that that Isaiah is speaking about. His hand is still upraised says Isaiah. Now notice the first thing that causes God to have his wrath roused. It is pride. Verse 8, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. 
Now, he is now addressing this more to Israel in the north, as you will see. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart. Now, what is it they say from verse 10? Well, let me tell you what's been happening. What has been happening is God has disciplined them. He has brought judgment upon them. He has brought the Assyrians against them particularly, and their houses have fallen down and their trees have been felled. What happens when somebody is under the discipline of God? What happens when somebody has been under God's judgment and they have known what it is in their own lives for the hand of God to cause them some form of distress like this? Well, there are two things that can happen. Either they can say, the Lord's hand has been upon me, and with all my heart I return to him in repentance and contrition and faith. Or they can say, verse 10, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but fig trees are inferior wood. We will replace them with cedars. What they are saying is, God has brought us under discipline. Sure, he has pulled down our old brick houses, but we'll build up better ones. He has felled our fig trees, but we will replant the place with cedars. Now, do you see what that is? It is human pride and arrogance defying God. And says... uh, Isaiah, the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes, that's Assyria, against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west, yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised, because this is a people who have not learned the lessons of their experience of God's disciplines. Very interesting thing in volume 5 of Winston Churchill's History of English-Speaking Peoples, which you have doubtless all read. At the beginning, he's got a a subtitle of volume 5. Really, really interesting thing. He says, and it's a subtitle for this period, How the Great Democracies Triumphed and Thus Were Able to resume the follies which had so nearly cost them their lives. How the great democracies triumphed and then were able to resume the follies which had so nearly cost them their lives. Now that is exactly what Israel was like at this period. We will build up dressed stone houses. We will replant with cedars. We'll go back to what we were doing before. Notice the second thing that brings God's anger. That's misleading leaders. Verse 13. The people have not returned Isaiah mourns to those who struck to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So here is God acting in discipline again. The Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch, that's the great palm branch that waves, and reed that is the little stalk. <laughs> 
in a single day. Now, who are these people? The elders, he says, and prominent men, these are probably the national leaders, are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guide, guided are led astray, so that sin makes its way through the whole of the land into even these areas where you would have expected God to find pity for people. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young man, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for every one is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. But who is responsible? Well, it's the national leaders and the religious teachers. Now, that speaks volumes, I think, you know. When you see, see a bit more about this before we finish, but when you see national leaders who are misleading a people, and when you see religious teachers who are teaching lies instead of truth, the Word of God tells us that God is angry with them. Now, you can't really take the Bible seriously and come to any other conclusion. And that's what makes an apostate church and an unjust, uncaring, unrighteous leadership so serious. Misleading leaders, both political and spiritual. Verses 18 to 21, the third thing that brings God's anger is ruthless, insatiable greed. Look at verse 18. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns, sets the forest thickets ablaze. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, verse 19, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. Now notice, this is really a picture of human greed. On the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring, that is, of his own family. Even family ties begin to become insignificant. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, and Ephraim on Manasseh, they are all the people of God. Together they will turn against Judah. And what is happening is that there is a ruthless, insatiable greed, which is really the basic selfishness that naturally rules the human heart. And it brings forth the anger of God. Notice finally in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, it is injustice which brings the anger of God. Now, we need to take this seriously too, my Christian friends, in society today, in the world in which we live. We need to take this seriously. Woe to those who make 
unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless, that is, orphans. Now, in a society where the helpless are preyed upon, and where laws are enacted which have a basic injustice about them, and decrees are issued which oppress certain helpless areas of society, God is displeased. And we ought not to be complacent. I think that's very important. That does not mean that we immediately become uh, rebels in society, exercising civil disobedience and so on, but it does mean that this ought to grieve us to our soul. Where we see this in any society, in any country, on whatever economic system, and God addresses these people through Isaiah, verse 3. What will you do, he says, on the day of reckoning? There is a day of reckoning coming. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave? your riches. Yet for all this, and I think one of the notes in Isaiah's repeated refrain is, people just do not learn from God's voice or from God's works. They do not learn the people, verse 13 of chapter 9, the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord. Now that's why it becomes so much more important to point people away to him who has come as the only hope to bring light into darkness and to call them to the Messiah who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. There is no other hope for the world than in Him. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 
1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.